spread the word. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back. And this week, we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 31. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-host, Ken Fader. And today, we're talking about the Solutrean Hypothesis and the Bering Strait. What is the Solutrean Hypothesis? What does it mean? And how did people actually get to the Americas? You ready to think critically? No, we don't do dinosaurs. Digging in a trench, monuments, going to the... Hey, everyone, and welcome back. Hey, Ken, how's it going? It's going all right, Sarah. We're all waiting here in the Northeast for the big chill, the big freeze coming. It's going to kill us all, so I'm glad we're doing this before that happens, because this could be our last podcast, because we're all going to freeze. You know, glaciers speaking... are coming back. Mammoths are coming back. <laughs> I was going to say, mess. speaking of glaciers and freezing, we... Yeah, exactly, exactly. Great transition. We are going to talk about migration myths today, particularly uh, Bering Strait myths and the Sultrian Ideas. Yeah, we're gonna well, we're gonna talk about how did people get here in the first place? Yes. Here being North the New World, North yeah, America. Yeah, yeah. We're South we're specifically focusing on uh North America, um, well, the Americas, I suppose. Right. Um, and we are not delving into uh like Native American myths or so that kind of thing. I know there's a lot of I know there's some bad blood between the Bering Strait migration theory and um native american uh oral histories in general yeah you know it's weird i have a a a little brief little story to tell um a a bunch of years ago i was invited to be on a a radio program in hartford and they invited a couple of archaeologists there was a museum person and a number of native americans Uh to talk about the relationship between archaeology and native americans because most most archaeologists here in the northeast and it's probably true of most of America, of most of North America, are not native people, and yet the stuff that we're studying was left by the the ancestors of the native people. Right. Anyway, so uh, the Bering Land Bridge, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But the whole notion of how did Native Americans get to America? When did that happen? What was the source population? We got into that. And one of the, and th- th- it was a very friendly conversation, and we agreed to disagree. But essentially, what I was told by a couple of the Native Americans was that we scientists, we archaeologists, were claiming that Native Americans were latecomers to this continent and therefore no different from the European settlers of the the 16th and 17th centuries. And my reaction to that was, hey, listen, we don't believe that that there were human beings in the New World, uh, the people that evolved here. That in fact Native Americans came from someplace, but my God, we're, we're saying it's ten or twenty or thirty thousand years ago. So we're not saying that you guys are latecomers or newcomers. 
Um, and that, that argument just did not sit well with them. They, they, they really, their, their assertion was that it was insulting somehow to Native Americans and their culture to, uh, to say that they came from somewhere else. And they, in fact, now, and every Native American tribe is going to have their different, a different origin story, like everybody else in the world. Um, but these folks maintain that, in fact, all Native American creation stories or origin stories posited that they were formed here, that they have always been here. Um, and yeah, that puts them at odds with what the scientific evidence indicates. Um, and it was unfortunate that we got into this, you know, this kind of argument between religion and science and that whenever that happens, it's a toxic, it's a toxic mixture. Um, and we all went away with our own opinion, but I think that that is, there is some of that, um, there, there is that, that dynamic between the stories told by Native people and what the archeological record, how the archeological record is interpreted by scientists. I, I think I can kind of see their point with the whole like comparing them, being compared to white settlers when they finally got here. I. I understand why they might not want to have that comparison right. made. Um, and you know, but I don't think that I don't think anybody at any point was like. I don't feel like anyone from the archaeology end has ever tried to say, you know, you're wrong, you right. know, stop being stupid, that kind of thing. I, I, I mean, regardless of when they got here, they're still the first people in America. Right. So, I oh, mean, yeah, of course. But, and, and I think that, that we archaeologists have to own up a little bit to the, the history of the white scientists who, yeah. who were trying to explain who Native Americans were and where they came from. Right, there yeah. is a history there. There is a history there of people, for example, we've talked about mound builders, denying and Native Americans were in any way associated with the builders of the mounds. And in fact, there, there, there were claims made in the 18th and 19th centuries that Native Americans were, in fact, a very recent, pop, represented a recent population movement into the New World, where there already were all these Europeans building mounds. And so I think that that when, with, with that as context, you certainly can understand why people would be a little bit suspicious of, again, mostly white scientists right, right. saying, well, no, we've got, we've got, the, we, we know where you people came from. Right, And no. I get that. But ultimately whatever whatever you think of us or whatever the argument whatever the source of the argument is we have data and data can be interpreted objectively and that has nothing whatsoever to do with somebody's story of origin their origin story right i mean it we, doesn't have to have anything to do with it anyway we kind of touched on this topic in the last podcast where we we're talking about right uh origin myths and oral histories so you know, I mean, it's it's a delicate balance to strike, but I mean, like I said, there's there's room for us to be respectful of other cultures, and there is also room for us to say, hey, these are the facts. You know, I, I yeah, and absolutely. I don't think in that in a situation like this, I don't feel like one trumps the other unless you're doing certain things with it. Like if you're trying right. to study the origin of or the movement of human people across the planet then you're going to have to default on the side of science here if you're right. trying to understand native american cultures and native american peoples then you're going to have to default with the side of their their oral histories and their, their mythology so yeah 
And, and, you know, and, and ultimately, you know, between geology, archaeology, anthropology, history, and genetics, we have a pretty good idea of how and when the continent, the new world, was, was populated. Yes. And like I said, uh, Native American issues aside, there is some really weird fringe stuff surrounding the Bering Strait. And I was not quite prepared for it when I looked it up. Apparently, did you know that it is possible to some groups that the Bering Strait ice, uh, ice shelf did not exist? I mean, the, the land bridge. Oh, no, no, no. The ice shelf. I'm not even sure what they're talking about. I know. You know. I mean, I, mean, I think they're line. confusing the. I, I think they think when we are talking about the Bering Land Bridge, I think people actually imagine it as a connection of the um, glacier, glacier, and they think people crossed on the glacier itself. Yeah. I, mean, well, I think part of the problem here is that it, the kind of common parlance, the vernacular, is we we talk about the Bering Land Bridge. And I think people then get this idea in their mind of this kind of narrow connection between yeah. the old and new worlds. And that, you know, you kind of had to tiptoe across like a, like a tightrope walker. And uh, it was so narrow that only skinny people could get across. So right. It, it, what we're talking about is uh, an, an, exposure, an exposure of land that is about, it's a, a thousand miles from north to south, something like that. This is not some some narrow little which little bridge, which is why um, most people, many people in the sciences, no longer call it the Bering Land Bridge. They refer to it as Beringia. It is an, a huge expanse of land, and it didn't open up overnight. It's something that slowly happened. I mean, I have in in my the story that I tell my students is that imagine if you're living in Northeast Asia, and you see the tide come in, you see the tide go out, and you know. I mean, the, the, the Sarah Palin was almost right when she said that she, <laughs> oh, that she could see, that. That she, well, when she <laughs> said she could see Russia from her, from her house. This is true. Uh, yes. You, she could actually probably could see some of the islands that are in Russian territorial waters. Um, so it's only about 90 miles across. And as the sea level slowly dropped as a result of so much of the earth's water being tied up in glaciers and not melting in the spring and right. covering parts of North America um, and parts of high elevations uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, especially that as that water, it's like letting water out of a bathtub, it's slowly exposed. And I'm sure there were people in, in Northeast Asia who began, really could see that there's there's a land out there. And as the tide went out, you could walk to it. And as long as you got back in time, you were fine. And that eventually that, that, that tidal area became fully exposed and animals started walking up, plants started growing on it. And again, I, I, I in, in my in my fantasy, it's like the old people are telling the young people, you know, back in my day, you couldn't walk out over there. And they're right. saying, oh, yeah, sure, Grandpa, whatever you <laughs> yeah. say. And they're they're not they're not probably aware of the fact that there is an, two entire continents on the other end of that pipeline. But they are. Hey, there's more territory there. There's plants and there are animals. Let's follow. And slowly, not even intentionally, they had become truly the first Americans. But the, anybody who says that there's no Bering Land Bridge or what, I, I'm, it's, it is even, it's not even worth responding to. The, um, the geology, the glacial geology, the, 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 the presence of animals on either side of the land bridge, it's just, it is, it's, it's undeniable. The, the, 
um, marine biologists, marine geologists, some people doing geology under under the the water, um, and the archaeology of both the Western Beringia, which would be Northeast Asia today, and Eastern Beringia, which would be Alaska today. Um, that it, it's not even um, it's, there's no debate there whatsoever. When 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 a lot of water is locked up on land as ice and doesn't melt, which is what happened during large stretches of the Pleistocene, right? Uh, the the world's coasts become reconfigured, and you know we're going to talk a little bit about the Salutrian hypothesis that also relies on the same thing: the fact that there's a land bridge, say, from Western Europe to North America, that the but that the presence of ice. Um, uh, in the North Atlantic, the pre making the trip um, not as long. In other words, you, you can you you hop from ice flow to ice flow that a maritime people could conceivably have entered into the New World from uh, Western Europe more readily than one could today, for example. The Salutrian hypothesis is an interesting one only because the Salutrian culture is so old. Because the Salutrian culture is it a culture it's not even a culture it's a phase isn't it oh you know those 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 terms i think most people refer to salutrian as culture um salutrian was that probably at its peak around seventeen thousand years ago but, but it's, it's but it's mainly a european it, it is i mean it's Western not mainly, it's a european thing yeah um but it's so old that it's one of those groups where we're we don't really have a lot of well, stuff for that. There's, well, no, there, there's a lot. I mean, the Salutrian lithics are amazing and spectacular. Yeah. We can just step back a little bit. One of the primary proponents of the Salutrian hypothesis, along with Dennis Stanford, is Bruce Bradley. And Bruce Bradley is... Bruce, Bruce and Dennis, Stanford and Bradley, are extremely smart guys with uh, amazing track record in archaeology, and Bruce especially in terms of lithic replication. I don't know anybody on the planet who knows more about stone tools and replicating stone tools than Bruce Bradley. I use his video, which is his flint napping video, I use in my experimental archaeology class. And I tell everybody, this guy, this is Yoda right here. You know, <laughs> when you want to channel the force for making stone tools, listen to and watch Bruce Bradley. And Bradley comes at this from the perspective of somebody who is extremely knowledgeable about lithic technology. And so when, when, when Bruce Bradley says there are some extremely deep um, com, uh, similarities between Salutrian lithic technology and the lithic technology in um, North America, the, the, the um, what, late Pleistocene, early Holocene lithic technology in North America, it's certainly, that is a reasonable hypothesis that there is a connection there and he's a really smart guy, and he knows what he's talking about. But, but, and we have to always put in that, but <laughs> the, the mere fact that there are these very interesting similarities, that calls for testing. That calls for additional data or evidence to support that, that the hypothesis that maybe, in fact, those first Americans were not Asians walking across the Bering Land Bridge or traveling along the Bering Land Bridge coast, but were a maritime people living in Western Europe uh, with a Salutrian technology. The pro the, and that leads to a lot of problems because, we, number one, yeah, the Salutrian stuff is a lot older 
than Clovis. I mean, it's thousands. There's yeah. about five thousand year difference between Clovis and Salutrian. So yeah. what happens in those five thousand years? There's absolutely no evidence that the Salutrian were a maritime people. So there's while you know the absence of absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, but nevertheless we we cannot find any support in the in the archaeological record for the Salutrian people being maritime, being um, a folk, folks with boats who one might one might imagine could sail from Western Europe to the New World, even but, if it's you know from ice flow to ice flow. And I see. That's why I'm support, saying that the Salutrian hypothesis gets thorny. Not that I support the idea that there were Salutrians in America. I'm just saying the culture and the time period was so far in the past that the evidence for the people themselves is very thin. I mean, we know they existed and we've got a lot of their stone tool technology from what I understand, but like culturally, we don't know a lot about them, right? Well, I mean, we know that they were just as the, the, you know, the Clovis people, they were reliant on megafauna because they're living in Europe during a time of a glacial maximum and so not a lot of plant foods, yeah. at least much of the year. So, yeah, they, these guys are, 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 are hunters and gatherers, and they probably have a major – look at their stone tools. Um, clearly, a lot of that stuff is geared towards big game hunting, Yeah, uh, certainly, certainly um, hunting. And so we know that. Um, the, the problem is, I mean, when you, I wonder sometimes if maybe people who look at the very deep elements of – the lithic technology of Salutrians and of say, Clovis or even pre-Clovis, if they're you know they're not looking, they, they can't see the forest for the trees. They're looking at all these details, but when you come down to it, there are no Salutrian fluted points, for example. So you've got the fluted point, which right. is the most characteristic or certainly the most diagnostic of uh, the technologies that define Clovis and then Folsom, and we don't see that at all. In Salutrian, are they making beautiful bifaces with all this gorgeous retouch flaking? Yeah, sure they are, but but the actual Salutrian points, as beautiful as they are, um, and as as symmetrical as they are, uh, and as beautiful and symmetrical as Clovis points are, they are they don't look alike. They are not the same. No, they don't. Technology. Yeah, they don't look anything alike, really. Um, I've seen some Clovis points, and I've seen pictures of the Salutrian points, and they they're not. Anywhere near identical, right. and I, you know, I am—I do not claim to be an, uh, an a lithics expert. No. I think that that somebody who who has done—and I've got um, a student of mine um, um, who's done amazing work um, with Bruce Bradley, in fact, who's uh, um, has has replicated Salutrian stuff and replicated um, the Clovis points and Folsom points. Um, somebody like that is going to be able to tell you on a much more visceral level what the similarities and differences are. But be that as it may, even if they are really super close, um, again, that all that kind of evidence, that kind of evidence merely suggests a hypothesis. And that's perfectly cool. That's what we do in science all the time. Right. We, we say we, we look at some, uh, one datum. We look at some um, little piece of evidence we go wait maybe we can explain that by maybe we can explain the similarities between clovis and salutrian by a, a, a historical and biological connection that those people came to the new world that's a perfectly valid hypothesis 
The problem then is, okay, well, let's test that hypothesis. And when we look at um, the data, the genetic data, for example, we look at um, the, 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 the archeological data as well. We look at the chronological data. It, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't support the claim that, well, yeah, these guys here in the Northeast, at least in the Northeast, um, came from Western Europe. Okay, well, we're gonna take a quick break right now. And when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll keep looking at the Salutrians and see where we're going with this. Cause we're going someplace cool. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we are back and we are talking about the Salutrian culture. And Ken, the reason we're talking about this is because I know that there was a, uh, a Salutrian looking point that was found. Sinmar, right? Sinmar. And then the Sinmar shipwreck. Um, no, it was found by the Sinmar ship. They, they, they were dredging, right? They were dredging. They were dredging, and they they pulled up a Salutrian point. I don't think there's any debate that it is a Salutrian point, and it was found in association with um, some megafauna bones. I don't remember what types of bones. Um, the problem is, is that it was very close to the uh, American border, the North American border, which would suggest that it is possible that Salutrian that the Salutrian culture made it to North America. We have to, we got to backtrack here a little bit. We can, we can, yeah. No. Let's backtrack a little tiny bit. First of all, <laughs> you know, we, one of the things that we've been yelling out about a lot on in this podcast is the whole no, notion of context, yes. association, and provenience. Yes. So that, for example, we talked about the Roman sword. When somebody tells us that this was a genuine Roman sword and it was found in a shipwreck, the thing that we've been doing, that we've asked is, all right, well, where are the field notes for that archaeological excavation? Right. Where are the maps? Where are the photographs? Where are the measurements of this thing in situ, in provenience? And that, that doesn't exist. The same is true of the Sinmar biface. We, we, we hear, oh, yeah, this was dredged up by a particular ship in a particular area in a particular day. There is no evidence that I've seen that confirms any of that so in other words it's just it's it's a just so story it's well just trust us it came up uh, you know uh, uh, 
while dredging, and here's where it was located, and here's the depth of our dredge. And unfortunately, none of that has been verified, at least to the satisfaction of skeptics. Right. Now, dredges in the Atlantic off the coast of North America have done amazing stuff. And there are maps of mastodon, I don't know if it's mastodon or mammoth, um, teeth or tusk fragments that have been brought up by dredges. And there have been enough of those so that you actually have people drawing where the, because these are animals that probably weren't swimming. And it's far, it's <laughs> oh, far. Oh, didn't you know mammoths were very strong swimmers? Well, you know. That's what that trunk was for. It's like a propeller. You know, listen, they have, they have dwarf mammoths on Santa Rosa Island off the coast of California who, if I'm not mistaken, they believe they actually did get there by swimming. And they end up being dwarf. They, there's island dwarfing. It's a real interesting okay, two uh, things. story of biogeography. You yeah. take all the fun out of my snipe, out of my, out of my, my snark when you prove me right. And two, I want a dwarf mammoth now. Oh, wouldn't you love one of them? Seriously? Wouldn't that be adorable? Can, can we have just, just here, just a sidebar on this. <laughs> I, What's, what's weird is I'm an old, I'm 63, so I'm supposed to be old and kind of conservative <laughs> and stodgy. And my students are supposed to be all progressive and excited about stuff. And when, when I bring up the possibility of cloning, you know, bringing back extinct species like mammoths or maybe dinosaurs, my <laughs> students, these kids in their teens and 20s, tell them, oh, that would be terrible. That would be horrible. That's the mark of the devil. And I'm thinking, how cool would that be? It's because they were all raised on Jurassic Park. That ruined it for everyone. I want a woolly mammoth, for God's sake. I know. Um, and, anyway. You know, they're actually based, I'm trying to remember now, I just saw an article somewhere, the quagga, which is um, a large kind of zebra-like animal in Southern Africa that is extinct. They have like quagga hides, and they've been able to do some um, genetic analysis of those, but they're extinct. But by finding the right kinds of zebras and doing all of these genetic crosses, they're actually, they're bringing back an animal who might not be genetically the, a quagga, but is certainly beginning to look like a quagga as opposed to a zebra or a horse. The quaggas only had stripes in the rear, the hindquarters. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen pictures of those, yeah. Yeah, and so. Well, bring, I mean, I, drawings. Damn it, bring back the Tasmanian tiger and the passenger pigeon and and Tyrannosaurus rex. I want a Tyrannosaurus rex oh, in my No, backyard. you don't. Only if you can have a little mini one, and then it's like having an alligator. All right. But back back to the point we're making. (laughs) So so dredges have done some... Now, these are guys not dredging for artifacts or or bones. They're dredging for other reasons, to make channels or whatever. Right. Um, And they brought up some stuff, and there's been enough of this so that there are actual maps showing where the shoreline of North America might have been during the glacial maximum because there's so many bits and pieces, and so many means dozens, of bits and pieces of, of the bones of extinct animals that would have been attracted to that shoreline. So that's really pretty cool. So yeah, if there were Salutrian people living along the coast, the then coast, the 12,000, 14, 16, 17,000 year old coast of North America, perhaps they would have dropped a spear point and it been brought up by a dredge. But man, you, you need a lot better provenience to support the notion that that particular art, and when it's, it's a, it's a, a buy point. So in other words, there's a point on top and a point on the bottom. It's really cool. Now, Sarah, you say, oh, it's definitely Salutrian. I don't know about that. <laughs> um, if you, if you, for example, um, if you look at uh, here in the Northeast, the kind of the, the Bible for the last 50 years of 
spear points and, uh, and, and arrow points, so stone tools. And this part of the world has been William Ritchie, who was like the, the godfather of archaeology in New York State. William Ritchie's book, The Typology and Nomenclature of New York State Projectile Points. We use it in Connecticut. We use it in Massachusetts and Rhode Island when we are typing points. And you know what? There are a couple of point types from the Northeast that at least gross morphology looks a lot like the Sinmar artifact. That is, they are kind of oval shaped and they have a point on top and a point on the bottom. Um, and so I am not- But really aren't this, so, okay, so here's my thing with that. I'm gonna interrupt you. And I'm only doing this to play devil's advocate. Um, my understanding of the Salutrian points is that they are very large, much like the Clovis points are very large in comparison to other points that came after them. So you're seeing similar spear points in your typology book. Um, is it possible that they're just looking similar? And when you have one in comparison to a Salutrian point that they're size wise, they don't compare. Yeah, but you know what? There's so much variation in size. I've got, I've got um, a cache of spear points that we excavated in the early 1990s, where these things are eight and nine inches long. Hmm. And they're, they're, they're ginormous. Yeah. Anybody who tells you that size doesn't matter, well, maybe <laughs> in that other thing it doesn't. But when it comes to making spear points, I tell you, it's kind of impressive. So there's a lot of variation in size. That's that, my point that we're keeping it classy on this podcast. There you go. But see, that again, it's kind of a special pleading, but doesn't it look one spear point? not very well provenienced without a real chain of, of evidence leading us back to a particular spot at a particular depth is it's listen it's 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 i understand folks who who want to believe that that thing is salutrian and that that thing is is diagnostic and definitive are might complain about you know we know what they're complaining about essentially is the old carl sagan uh, uh, maxim, which is that extreme claims require extreme levels of evidence or levels of proof. Right. And you know what? The Salutrian hypothesis, which by the way is not, uh, wasn't uh, invented by Bruce Bradley and, and, and Dennis Stanford. There's an article in the mid-1970s in Current Anthropology, a long research article that made uh, a similar claim, it was based on a, sim a similar idea, that is, that in fact North America had been in ha had been settled by folks by Western European Upper Paleolithic people. So that's been that's been around for a long time. Um, but if you're gonna, you know, we have so much evidence that indicates that people came from Asia, from Northeast Asia into right, the New right, World. Right. We have so much archaeological evidence, geological evidence, and genetic evidence that if you're going to say no, 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 that's all wrong, you have to rewrite the history books. The evidence has to be a whole lot stronger than a single point with uncertain provenience. So why do you think then that Bradley and San Stanford are so invested in the Salutrian point and the Salutrian presence in North America? Well, I mean, you'd have to ask them. I mean, I think Stanford has, has always been. I guess, that was, of, I guess that was kind of a not fair question to really be asking. Yeah, I just I mean, wondered, I mean, I know you can't identify their motives, but maybe there's like something in their writings that kind of hints towards why. No, I, I don't think there's like some psychological need on their part. Dennis Stanford has always been real cutting edge. No, I mean, like, do they have some, do they have a piece of evidence that they're just like, no, this is it, done? No, no, but, you know, I think that that's, that's hard. That's always hard to find in archaeology, right? Yeah. But I think that, 
that they're both good scientists and good scholars, and they've got an idea that they've glommed onto, and that they think that they've got, uh, you know, uh, 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 that they've got the evidence that's going to cause us all to rewrite those history books, and maybe someday, maybe that will, um, th th they will have that evidence. But as of right now, they certainly don't. And they have, they, have a, they have so much explaining to do and so much kind of massaging that they have to do because again, the, the evidence just isn't there. Certainly uh, it, it pales in comparison to the evidence that supports the, the, um, the notion that folks came into the new world via a land bridge connecting or through Beringia, collecting, connecting Northeast Asia and Northwest North America. Now, before um, we before we get into that evidence, because as you say, there's there's no doubt. I I don't think in anybody's in most people in archaeology's minds that the Bering Land Bridge is right. how people got here. I I don't think there's a very large camp of people that don't agree with that. Yeah. Um, and I want to make sure that people understand that we are moving beyond. Uh, Stanford and Bradley at this point because we are filing them in in the back and we're moving on to fringier thoughts sure into the actual fringe um but we're still dealing with the Salutrian and it's important because uh as Ken has pointed out the Salutrians are a, a, a European culture um that is thought to have been maritime or people are hoping was maritime because of how they would have had to have gotten right to North America um, and this becomes important because when you start looking into some of the uglier sides of the fringe, particularly the, the um, what we call race realists and um, uh, supremacists, basically, they really glob onto the idea of the Salutrian migration and the Salutrian's first I, uh, hypothesis because for them, it validates their ideas that a, a white European race is a superior race. And so for them, if that, if a, if a white European culture made it to America first, right. It's like being the first person to comment on a thread, you know, it makes right. them better than everyone else. <laughs> and, um, and again, this has nothing to do with Bruce Bradley. Absolutely, absolutely nothing, nothing to do with and, this too. And there are a number of others. There are some archeologists who are um, a lot, who are skeptical yet, a lot more, um, well, not open-minded isn't even the right word, but they are, they are, they will not be totally shocked. I'll be totally shocked if definitive evidence is, is brought forth that shows that, yep, the Solutrians were here. Um, there are some colleagues of mine who wouldn't, who they are skeptical, but they wouldn't be totally shocked. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, before we go any further, I, I we should make that distinction. I am not saying that Everyone who believes in the, in the Salutrian hypothesis belongs in the category of race realist or basically a racist. I'm not saying that. Um, please don't read that into it. What right. I am saying is that there are groups of race realists and racists who support the Salutrian hypothesis because yeah, sure. if it is true, then it supports their idea of racial superiority which even if it was true it doesn't do that so right you know we're not trying to push an agenda on someone who it doesn't belong in. i do right. want to talk about people who are trying to push an agenda that there's no there's no evidential backing for ever 
Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I think, but I think that, that as we said earlier, this is part of a, there's an ignoble history here. There's a tradition of people looking at the archaeology of North America and wanting to somehow disassociate the modern native people, yes. modern meaning 17th century, 18th century, or 21st century, disassociating oh, yeah. them from the amazing archaeological record that's here on this continent and ascribing it to somebody else, often white folks. This is why we saw in the 18th and 19th centuries people saying, no, the Indians, they could not have built the mounds. They're not smart enough or they don't work hard enough. It must be somebody else. And though somebody else often were, often was supposed to be you know, white folks from Europe. And this, in some ways, this meant, well, us white folks taking the continent, we're just taking it back from these Indians yeah. who came and wiped out the mound builders. And I think that that thread is running through here. And you're absolutely right. Yes. There are, there are a bunch of folks who who, are, who grab onto this and say, ah, oh, yes. In fact, the Indians are just a minor historical accident here in North America. It really was first settled by hardy, um, manly men who somehow <laughs> managed to cross the ice flows and plant their flag here in North America, and they were from Europe. They were they were Aryans or whatever. And I yeah, there are people. I think that. the highest arrogance of that entire fantasy, because it really is a fantasy, is the assumption that those people were white. Well, yeah. You know, I mean, if, if the, you actually, if you look at the genetics. And, and we're doing uh, these, these folks doing genetics on, on skeletons are doing an amazing job. Yeah. Is that as of right now, it appears that the kind of the European, the general European genome wasn't established until about 8,000 years ago. Yeah. So that this, this Salutrians, we don't know what the hell they looked like. Exactly. That's, that's 10,000 years before the, the kind of modern um, haplo, mitochondrial haplogroups and modern um, um, genomes were established. Uh, you know, there's a, somebody 8,000 years ago in Europe, you could look at them genetically and say, okay, yeah, they're European. Right. But th th it, we, before that, it's all bets are off. Right, exactly. And that's what people don't understand. Yeah. And that's where the genetics arguments really kind of make me squiggy because it's just, you know, there's just, there's, oh my God. So there's people out there who put on their profiles on like Facebook and Google and, and Twitter and that. They apparently have sent their oh my god their genes in ha and have gotten their their genetic codes back and they will put on their profiles the fact that they belong to certain European haplogroups as if that's somehow proving them to be whiter than thou. Well, listen, and it's it's, yeah, it's disgusting and it's weird. It drives me crazy and. We can, we absolutely should bring on a biological anthropologist to Seriously, talk about yes. the, the, the companies that you, you they'll send you a kit for a hundred bucks. You spit, you on spit a, on a Q-tip and they, and they tell you who you are. The, the ads that are on TV now are absolutely horrible. They're reprehensible. In one of them, there's a guy who says, well, you know, I always was told that I was, you know, German. And we used to go to like German parties. We ate German food. Then I sent my spit in, and it turns out I'm really Scottish. No, no, you asshole! If you were raised German, you're German. What the right. hell? Your genes don't. The, the, that genetic test doesn't mean anything. But the worst one, Sarah, I've seen this just recently, where a woman says, "Well, I was always told that I was, and I think it's like Italian." But I sent my genes in, and it turns out 
I'm an, an American Indian. And while she's talking about this, Jeez. on the table behind her, she has a completely ersatz looking, like kind of Southwestern Indian pot, but the kind you can buy for like a buck because no self-respecting native ceramicist <laughs> would make it. And right next to that pot is a little toy totem pole. So she's got a Northwest Coast Indian icon, a uh, Southwest Indian icon, both of them fake, and that somehow because that, and she's got those now because her genes show that she's a Native American. Yeah, it's we just total crap. We have an entire episode that we need to do just discussing how race and culture are not the same thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's crazy, a, crazy stuff. Yeah. That's yeah. So, but anyway, my point before we digressed into this rather important topic, honestly, is the fact that the Salutrian hypothesis is unfortunately being used right. to bolster um, uh, race realists and, and racist uh, fringe groups. And right. this, is, well, this is another issue in academia, and it's not academia's fault. It's just sometimes when these things get published and then the public gets a hold of it, you know, they, they can run off in tangents with things and you have no control over it. Yeah, and, and also it shows that we've got to be a lot more careful and how, how we phrase things so that it right. can't be misinterpreted. Um, listen, when, when Kennewick Mann, right, that was the, the guy found in, what was it, the, near, uh, in Oregon, Oregon, Washington? Yes. Kennewick, 9,600-year-old uh, skeleton, really super important. And Jim Chatters, who's a great guy and a, and a wonderful researcher, who at some point said, you know, we, at first we thought he was a white settler based on the shape of his head. He had Caucasoid characteristics. People read Caucasoid, yep. Caucasoid and heard in their brains Caucasian. Yep. Caucasoid just means similar to. Caucasian means somebody actually descended from somebody from the Caucasus Mountains. Right. And they ran with that. And the absurdity there was you actually had what were they called? The Asatru group. These were a group of kind of latter day Norsemen, like living in Wisconsin. Well, hang on, hang yeah. on, Ken, hang on, because this okay. is going to be important. Let's go to break and then okay. we'll come back and we'll pick up with uh, the Norsemen. You betcha. <laughs> The Archaeology and AL podcast presents a monthly series of lectures on all aspects of archaeology. These lectures are part of the Archaeology in the City program, hosted by the University of Sheffield in England, and are held at the Red Deer Pub near the end of the month. The podcast can be heard a few days later. Check out the Red Deer if you're in the area, or find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the show. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. 
or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. And we are back. And Ken, you were talking about Norsemen. These Norsemen. So what happened was this was soon after the the discovery of Kennewick and it became, um, it was all over the news and any whatever number of people were claiming that, hey, listen, Native American groups in the Northwest were claiming he is our ancestor and we don't want a bunch of white scientists poking at him and cutting up his bones and we want him back in the ground. But there was a group of, I think the name was the Asatru. Um, These guys claim that Again, because of some of the early assertions that, well, his head is dolichocephalic, which is unlike the Native Americans, and it's, you know, and based on gross morphology of the cranium, um, they, these guys were claiming that, in fact, he was an ancient Norseman, yeah. the, the Kennewick fossil, the Kennewick skeleton, and they actually demanded that they be allowed to do traditional ceremonies over the bones, yeah, um, which was crazy. And then when when some of the initial genetic work was done, and they said, well, there, there seems to be some sort of Pacific connection here. There actually was a group of, of Pacific Islanders living in Los Angeles who claimed that Kennewick Man is actually a Polynesian. So everybody was trying to claim ownership of this poor skeleton. Um, what's really cool is that Fairly recently, and I don't have the like the last couple of years, the um, they finally were able to uh, extract some genetic material from Kennaway, mm-hmm. and he is, you know, it, it's a long story, but there basically are what five mitochondrial haplogroups in North America: yeah. A, B, C, D, and X. Yes, and we'll talk a little bit about X because that ha- we have to deal with that, but. Um, Kenwick Man is haplogroup D, which is like exclusively in North America. Right. Um, he is not. He is not a. He is not from Polynesia, and he's not from Europe. He is a Native American. Right. And more and more forensic biological anthropologists have always known. Well, for a long time, have known. You look at gross morphology of a, of a cranium; it doesn't tell you anything. Um, even Franz Boas recognized that among Eastern Europeans who moved to the New World because of changes in diet, yep. that skull shape changed like in a generation. Yeah. So that the, 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 the grandparents' head shape and the, the head shape of their children or grandchildren looked nothing alike. And yet they were the same, they were in the same family. Yeah. Having, and so that, that, that is actually more plastic. Genetics is not so plastic. So absolutely, um, I th- and I think that I'm trying to remember now. It was off the coast of the uh, on the coast of the Yucatan near Tulum, which is a beautiful Maya site. They recovered in a cenote in a deep um, sink. They recovered within the last couple of years the skeleton of a young woman, and again, it's nine or ten thousand years old, and she's haplogroup D as well. Mm-hmm. So that is a that's a pretty typical Native American haplogroup. The thing is, though, um, and you'll see this. In the fringy types, who especially are associated with some um, segments of the Mormon Church, who claim that that when Native Americans are found with haplogroup X, 
that that's proof that, in fact, those people are from Europe and somehow supports the Book of Mormon. Yeah, let's um, get into haplogroup X because I know we don't have a ton of time left, but it is important to kind of have a base understanding yeah. of it. Here's the deal. Everybody, and you know, I will send you a link to this so you can post it, Sarah. <laughs> will you? A, will you really? There's a really, really, really good article, and you can download it for free for nothing as a PDF um, by Jennifer Raff from the University of Kansas and Deborah Bolnick. Now, I know Deborah Bolnick. I don't know that I've ever actually met her, but we've co-authored a paper um, <laughs> on. Yeah, isn't that funny? Oh, actually, yeah. But she's. Um, she is a biological anthropologist and has done she in fact has done some of the genetic studies of Native American skeletons in mound sites in Ohio mm -hmm. so she's got a long history of doing amazing genetic work and they published a paper called Does Mitochondrial Haplogroup X Indicate Ancient Transatlantic Migration to the Americas a Critical Reevaluation and it's um in a journal called Paleo America. And I will, I'll send before, when we, the second we get off the phone, I'll send you this, <laughs> I'll send you the, the PDF and you can post the, the link to it. But the deal here is one of the points that they make is, you know, you can't look at these things simplistically that, that haplogroup X has several subgroups yes. and those several subgroups are distributed differently. The, the, the haplogroup that is found in the new world, which is X2A, is not the same haplogroup as haplogroup X that's found, the Mormons say that it, they're found in like um, the Middle East. Um, the deal is it's a lot more complicated than that. They're not the same haplogroups. They're not connected. They're not directly connected anyway. Um, and the, um, if, I don't know if the people listening to the podcast are aware of this, um, again, amazing genetic analysis of the Anzic boy, which is again, about a 10,000 year old skeleton from mm -hmm. Montana. Um, the cool story there is that, and I can't remember the, well, the woman's name is Anzic, Susan Anzic, I think. She actually grew up on the farm where the skeleton was found. Oh, cool. And, and then she was so, she got so excited when it was discovered like 20 years ago or 25 years ago, so excited by it that she went to, to college to major in biological anthropology, went to grad school. And when the scientists came to, the, the, the skeleton had been found on her father's farm, I guess. And when the, the scientists wanted to do the analysis, she said, yes, but only if I'm allowed to be part of the pro, part of the, the team and analyzing it. Nice. So that's really pretty cool. And uh, the little guy, the, the Anzic boy is haplogroup X2A. Mm -hmm. And guess what? There's a little boy found at the site of Malta which is in Siberia near Lake Baikal. And that little boy in Siberia is the same haplogroup. Um, the, same, the same thing happens when we look at Y chromosomes. Y chromosomes for the skeletons, when, when those are re recoverable from skeletons in the new world, they are not Asian or African or Australian or Polynesian. They, they are um, a Native American and they can be traced to Northwest, Northeast Asia. Yes. So the genetic evidence there, and you know, anybody who wants to argue with Jennifer Raff and Deborah Bolden, good luck, because these folks, these women know what they're talking about and have done, and they, they understand that people looking at it from a very simple perspective, well, there's X here, there's X there, there's a connection. They do a really good job in this article of indicating how 
Yeah, you, you need to go look beyond the gross groupings and look at the, the subgroupings. Well, I don't think a lot of people are aware that there are subgroups. I think uh, maybe people, that's the problem. Well, I know it has to be some of the problem because when I was in school, we were just told there are haplogroups done. Right. You know, so there wasn't even a discussion about subgroups. Um, so I know a lot of people that are only um, casually aware of these things probably don't understand that there are subgroups to that, to the X. Uh, and then you get the people that do understand that there are subgroups, but they don't understand how that the subgroups are not like directly related because to some people, when you say there are subgroups of X, but X is found in Europe. Therefore the subgroups of X are like the children of the parent group. So, right. Yeah. No, what, what in, um, I think it's in this is in an article in Nature by Morton Rasmussen and his colleagues when they they looked at the the, the Anzic boys um, DNA and the the Yucatan girls DNA that's what they call it they're both haplogroup D and what they conclude based on all of this kind of this this meta study is that it's it's like well eighty six percent of Native American ancestry derives from East Asia and the part that doesn't is that well, it's also the case that people living in East Asia were um, mating with people who were further to the West yeah. and moving through those areas. So, yeah, they're, they're going to be, you know, th that's the, the, the notion that human groups have ever been able to build a wall around them and, you know, maintain racial, that's in scare quotes, purity. Right. It's nonsense. Wherever, wherever people go, you know, the, the old idea that wherever people go, they fight wars. Wherever people go, they, they fight wars, sure, but they also have sex. <laughs> and, they have kids. and so there, so there's, there's gene flow always going on. But when you look at Native Americans, it's it's abundantly clear genetically they're from East Asia. Yeah. Now that's a that's complicated in itself because the people in East Asia are not isolated, right? And, and they came from someplace. But that fundamentally, they're. Um, I, I know what what uh, what Bol, Raff and Bolnick indicate is that if the Salutrians came into North America we would see their genetic signature and we absolutely don't. Right. Now that does, does that mean we never will? No. It just it, means it we is. haven't found it yet. Yeah. And just, you know, coulda doesn't mean did we, it's lots of things could have happened, but without evidence to support those things having happened, they remain on unproven hypotheses. Right. And as you said earlier in the show, you know, we need a whole lot more evidence to support a claim like that yeah. than well, is, got, right. that has been offered. We have we have really we have what I believe to be definitive evidence that human beings came into the new world maybe as much as thirty thousand years ago, probably twenty five thousand years ago, based on uh, read uh, the Monte Verde site has recently been gone back to by Tom Tom Dillahay, uh, and they've got stuff now that dates to eighteen five eighteen thousand five hundred. Well, you're at you know you're way down on the coast of South America. It's going to take a while for people to get there from Beringia, which is what probably happened. Right. And so the notion that people entered into the New World and against genetically, archaeologically, looking at, at glaciology, looking at geology, somewhere between 20 and 30,000 years ago is sounding pretty good. And we have pre-Clovis sites. I think those are indisputable at this point. Um, uh, so it, it's... We've we got, have we pre-Clovis really sites, model. but they are not Salutrian sites. We should right. be no, sure yeah, to yeah. distinguish that. Right. We have a really good model. 
Does that mean we are absolutely that that model is etched in stone, which is a weird phrase for an archaeologist because we like stone. But the bottom line here is, no, it's not. It's it's a model that seems to work. It seems to it's a good model for covering everything that we know. If somebody's got something that's going to make us either revise that model or flip it entirely, that's great. If that happens, that's awesome. It just hasn't happened yet. Right, 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 right. So, yeah. So I think we've talked enough about the Salutrians to the point where I think, or Salutrian being in North America to the point where I think people understand that there's no consensus that they ever made it here and that the consensus is that the the people that we refer to as Native Americans did make it across the Bering. There was a Bering Strait and they did make it across well, there, there is a Bering Strait. There was a Bering Land Bridge. It was land Bridge, a, a yes. platform. I keep calling you want it the Strait. It. I don't know why. It's two different. The Straits are there. The Straits are the there. The Strait's still there, yeah. And that's another thing that people should know is that is that historically we know that Inuit people, Eskimos, even when it was, you know, a Strait, they moved back and forth. Yeah. 90 miles for a maritime people who are accomplished sailors was no big deal. Right. Right, 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 right. And that the, I guess there are times when it even freezes over. So you literally could walk across. There's no land bridge. There actually was an ice bridge at that point. I think that's where people get confused with the whole ice shelf thing. I think they're they're thinking of that, that ice bridge that can form. Um, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we didn't even touch on the, the how many migrations came across. Because when I was in school, they were teaching us that there were three separate migration patterns or three separate migration periods. And now I'm guessing I, I've been told that that's actually up for debate. Well, you know what? It was it was up for de- debate for a long time, but now there are some recent articles that basically say the same thing: that there are the first Americans who are the 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 that the the ancestors of that Anzic boy and the Yucatan girl, and there. So there, those guys are ten, eleven, twelve thousand years old. Right. And that they represent the the most those were the they are the descendants of the first entry into the new world the first wave but that there were two subsequent waves into the arctic um and and the the paleoarctic cultures and the thule and the the dorset um and so that that kind of two or maybe three waves seems to be getting some support um genetically again so okay which Yay. is cool, and it's cool, but it's it's great that these things are being questioned. There's no problem with that. Um, and as new forms, I mean, this is the the three wave, the three wave pattern um, was proposed long before there was any genetic evidence to yeah. support yeah. one wave or two waves or twenty waves. Um, and you know, and the bottom line here is something also to point out, just to to, to open it up a little bit. None of this. Um, is meant to absolutely categorically deny the possibility that a boatload of people from some other part of the world by sheer accident managed to make it to the new world <laughs> uh, 12, 10, 15,000 years ago. That could have happened. The issue is here that the archaeological evidence and the genetic evidence shows that if it did happen, they didn't have any impact. Yeah. Their genetic signature there, a shadow of the of their genome does not exist True. Yeah. among North among Native American Indians. That there the if there were any archaeological sites indicating that those people were here, bearing a different culture with different raw materials and different ways of doing things, no archaeologist has found that. 
Right. So. Um, and and I know that people like to fall back on the whole Carl Sagan absence of evidence is an evidence of absence, but we're taking that quote out of context as well. Right. Because and, that was Sagan speaking out of frustration towards people who cannot accept an absence of evidence. And, you know, there there's some interesting, um, I've, I've tracked down some philosophers who have attacked that and basically say, you know, sometimes the absence of evidence is evidence of absence. If somebody, the, the guy's talking about a college campus, he says, if somebody tells you that there's an elephant on the quad right. and you go out and look for it and you don't find any elephant poop, you probably are in pretty good, uh, you probably are pretty wise to say, no, that uh, the evidence of that absence is, ab that the absence of evidence there is evidence of absence. Well, and that, uh, honestly, that was Sagan's point in the book. It's, it's right. His point yes. was, when there is no evidence, it usually means there's there's a reason for that. Right. And that is because whatever you're looking for isn't there. Um, but as, as has been pointed out, negative data is still data. Absolutely. Uh, I heard that a lot when I was going through school and it has just been brought up again. So negative data I, is still data. I, I tell that to my students when they're digging test pits and not yes. finding anything. I, really I believe depressed. that's just what field what, what field school directors tell yes. you to make tell, you not feel bad about the yes. fact that you're digging a sterile pit. pit. Yes. yes. You, you tell your you tell your, your diggers, wow, you didn't find anything. That's really important. Yeah. That's great. That's negative evidence is important. And then the field director walks away and laughs under and laughs his or her yes. breath. But it is, there is some truth to that. And then they give you a rock hammer and tell you to go break up the asphalt behind the garage because that's okay, where well, your next unit's going. So, yes. That sounds like fun. <laughs> Ken, do you feel like there's anything else that needs to be said before we wrap up? No. I, here's what I want to tell you, though. I've, okay. I've already emailed you the PDF. I, I got the notification. It there is in my inbox. Yeah. It's a really... Uh, both Jennifer Raff and Deborah Bolnick, not only are they terrific scientists, they really write very, very well. Um, and they're not, you know, hard ass about it. They say, look, this is what the evidence right now indicates. This is the way that the, the, the most um, parsimonious way of, of interpreting the data. And there we stand. And they come out, they are not, uh, they don't believe that solution hypothesis has any genetic support. Yeah. And that's kind of the best we can go with for right now. Right. So thank you for sending that to me and thank you for another enjoyable podcast, Ken. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Sarah. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Raise your trials as one will call. No, we don't do a dinosaur. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at Archie Fantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash Fantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www 
chris.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.